Okay, so the topic for today and the coming classes is the laws of Mashiach as um, taught by the, by the Rambam in Mishnah Torah. And um, there is a sort of campaign going on right now to study the Dvar Malchus booklet, which is the Rebbe Sichas, as they pertain to these Rambam, and uh, and also just a moment. Um, and uh, there's some other sikhas. So I hope over the next few weeks to study some of these sikhas together. I should also mention that today's class is dedicated in honor of the earth site, Dele Nishmas Reb Henech ben Avram. That's uh, Yaakov Weingro's grandfather. So the topic for the first sikha that we're going to learn is the what, what is the place of miracles in the era of Mashiach? And the Rebbe famously uh, has this novel idea where we have two eras, two kufas, two eras within Mashiach itself, where the, we, we start off without miracles and then later on more miracles get introduced. But before we see what the Rebbe has to say, I think it will be most productive to first see all the classic source material, all the relevant Rambams and Gemaras um, on the inside first. So the Rambam talks about Mashiach um, primarily in two places. Number one is the, is the last two chapters of the Book of Rambam. And by the way, it's important, I should point out that the Rebbe often emphasized that whilst our holy books are full of literature about Mashiach, um, the Rambam's uh, rulings on this take sort of uh, um, precedence or, or, or have, a, have more prominence than any, anything else in the sense that the Rambam are the only, is the only um, safer where you have where, there are, where we talk about Mashiach from a halachic in a halachic context. We know that in Torah there are numerous sections, there's Pshatra Mashiach, there's Halacha, there's Agada, there's um, homiletical things, etc. And there's things which are taken literally, not taken literally. The Rambam is the book of Halacha. And in the book of Halacha, it's, it's decisive, it's descriptive. We'll see that there's also, um, there's Igris Rambam, there's letters that the Rambam wrote. And one of the letters, a very famous letter, is called the Gerest Chis Mason, which we're going to look at in a little bit. Um, but in a certain way, like that, we have a little bit less interest in the letter of the Rambam as we do in the words of the Rambam in the Halacha Sefer. So we, we're going to look at the words of the Rambam in the letter, and they may shed light on certain um, details. But we're here to, under, to, to determine the halacha, so the, 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 which is something the Rambam writes much more descriptive and decisive. Hmm? So, so the Rambam speaks about Mashiach in two places. The last two prokim of the entire book of the Rambam, Hilchas Melachim and Melchamis. Um, or in some manuscripts it says the last two chapters are all about Mashiach. In addition to that, the Rambam talks about Mashiach 
in the the end of chapters eight and nine and possibly ten also. Uh, what's chapter ten over here? Yeah, chapters eight and nine primarily um, of Hilchus Teshuva, which is the end of the first book, right? So the end of the fourteenth book and the end of the first book of the Rambam are about Mashiach. So. Is, is the screen positioned uh, at optimum for right now? Okay. So let's look at the Rambam in Parakud Aleph in chapter 11 of Hilchas Melachim. The Rambam starts off saying about what Mashiach will do. We discussed this a little bit when we started learning the other Sikh by Shabbos um, Adel. Ari, do you want to give her a hand with the door over there? Um, He's going to reintroduce the build the temple, reintroduce the observance of the sacrifices, etc. And then the Rambam says, one should not presume that messianic king must work miracles and wonders, bring about new phenomena in the world, resurrect the dead, perform or perform other similar deeds. This is definitely not true. Right? Mashiach need not do any miracles. And the example the Rambam gives is that Mashiach need not resurrect the dead. No new phenomena in the world. Now, then the Rambam says, I'll bring you a proof. And he says, Rabbi Kiva, who was one of the greatest sages of the Mishnah, was one of the supporters of Bar Kochba, and would describe him as the King Mashiach. Now, it's unclear, there's, the commentaries point out, it's unclear where the Rambam gets this from, that he was Noise Kalev, that he, the Gemara says that he thought that he was Mashiach, but where does the Rambam get it from that he was actually Noise Kalev, that he was sort of one of his troops, you know, he he translates this here as supporters, but Noise Kalev, literally Noise Kalev means he carried his, his weapons. Um, but it means that he was, you know, one of the, one of the, very ardent supporters of Bar Kokhba. And he and all the sages of his generation, Ramam says, considered him that he was Mashiach until he was killed because of his sins. Once he was killed, they realized that he was not the Mashiach. The sages did not ask him for any signs or wonders. Okay, so the relevance of Bar Kokhba over here is the Ramam calls him Ben Kuziva, Bar Kokhba, same person, that um, we see that. The sages, the Rambam says, all the sages, maybe it was many of the sages, Rabbi Kiva, many of the sages considered Bar Kokhba to be Mashiach, and, or, or, or they considered him to be Mashiach in the making, right? He, he, the Rambam has said earlier, Mashiach is not sort of confirmed as Mashiach until he has built the temple and etc. So they obviously didn't consider Bar Kokhba to be actually Mashiach, but they considered him to be Mashiach in the making. And yet, they, and we don't find that they asked him for any miracles. So this is proof, says the Rambam, that Mashiach doesn't have to do any miracles, right? And in the first sikhah of the Dvar Malchus, the one which we started learning at the Ayal, and hopefully we'll revisit, is that the function of Mashiach is to reinstate complete fulfillment of the 613 mitzvahs, which primarily, which has to be done by building the, the temple, etc. Now, the 
other commentaries um, disagree with the Rambam on this. They disagree. In fact, the Ravid says, what do you mean? The Ravid is the, he's the, the, the one who's always arguing on the Rambam, the most, that's what he's known for. And he <laughs> says, no, they did. They, there was, the, they, they did disqualify him because of the miracle. He, he says, we know that Mashiach is Merach Vadoin. Mashiach, the Gemara learns out, which discusses before that Mashiach will be able to judge based on his smell. And he's, the rabbit says they tested Bar Kochba um, to see if he could taste, if he could judge, if he was able to smell whether the person was guilty or innocent. And he wasn't, and therefore they killed him. And this goes into the whole Machloikas in general who killed, that's Machloikas amongst the, the Rishonim, who killed Bar Kochba? Was he killed by, this, by the Jewish sages because he was a false messiah? Or was he killed by the Romans? Or perhaps was he? Did the Jew, did the Jewish people, give him, a, hand him over to the Romans to be killed? But be that as it may, for right now, what's relevant for right now is the Rambam's interpretation of the Bar Kokhba story, that he held that Bar Kokhba was that they agreed for him to be Mashiach, that they thought him to be Mashiach, and there was no requirement for there to be any miracles. All right. Now, then, the Rabbam continues that, again, emphasizing that the Mashiach is going to be diligently studies Torah, observes mitzvahs, etc. And he, then he goes on to his famous, um, what's the word about uh, Christianity and, and, and Islam, how they, how they were false messiahs, etc. Okay. Diatribe? Yeah, diatribe, that's what I was looking for, thank you. All right, then we move on to chapter 12. Now, chapter 11 is basically describing the person, the persona of Mashiach. And chapter 12 is focused more on describing the era of Mashiach. So in chapter 12, he says like this, do not presume that in the Messianic age, any facet of the world's nature will be changed, or there will be innovations in the work of creation. Rather, the world will continue according to its pattern. Now, although the prophet says that the wolf will dwell with the lamb and the leopard will lie down with the young goat, these words are a metaphor and a parable. The interpretation of the prophecies is as follows. Israel, who is compared to the goat or the lamb, will dwell securely together with the wicked Gentiles who are likened to a wolf and a leopard. As another prophecy says in Yermia, a wolf from the wilderness shall spoil them and a, le and a leopard will stalk their cities. They will all return to true faith and no longer steal or destroy. Rather, they will eat permitted food at peace with Israel, as the, as, as the Pasuk says, the Arya Kaboka Yechatevin, the lion, will eat, will eat straw like an ox. By the way, all the verses that the Ramam quotes here from Isaiah 11 are part of the Haftarah that we read on Achron Shal Pesach, the famous Haftarah about Mashiach. Okay. 
which the we'll probably we'll get back to this, but I'll just point out now that that after is uh, that that prophecy of Yeshaya from chapter eleven starts off with the words of Yotzachaytem Megeza Yeshai um, that there will be a descendant of Yeshai of King David of David Hamelech who will be what we call Mashiach and will bring about um, peace as described by this pasuk the wolf will dwell with the lamb etc etc so as we'll see later on and more next week that. That is actually very specific, that when we're talking about Mashiach's function, the person of Mashiach, his function is to bring peace and not to perform any miracles, right? And therefore, anything which sounds miraculous in the description of, in the job description of Mashiach, the Rambam is going to tell us that these are metaphors are not to be taken literally. Similarly, other, yes? What about the smell thing? where you can smell the, um, the so guilt the, of a person. Is that a miracle? So the Rambam doesn't address that explicitly. Um, I would say a few things. Yes, it is a miracle. Oh. Um, perhaps the Rambam would hold that that goes according to a different, to, the, to sages who hold that Mashiach will do miracles, but he passes like the other sages. Possibly there's other ways to address that. I'm not aware of just off the top of my head. But um, the, the commentators do discuss that a little bit over here. But once we get to the Rebbe's sort of chiddush, that there are, that they, no, that wouldn't. Yeah, I'm not sure. It's a good question. We have to revisit that. Okay. Similarly, other messianic prophecies of this nature are, are metaphors. In the Messianic era, everyone will realize which matters were implied by these metaphors and which illusions they contained. In other words, the Ramam is saying, don't ask me every single puzzle and every prophecy, what does it allude to? What is the what is the what is the metaphor? You know, basically we get it. The woeful lie of the lamb means it's going to be a time of peace. Exactly what every puzzle means, we'll figure that out when it happens. And then the Ramam quotes, our sages taught there will be no difference between the current age and the age of Mashiach except for the emancipation of our subjugation to the Gentile kingdoms. Um, right, and we're going to see soon the Gemara, this quote that the Rambam brings over here, that there's no difference between the current age and the Messianic age, Except Shibud Malchius, except those emancipation from our subjugation to the Gentile nations, is a quote from Shmuel in the Gemara. Okay, then he goes on to Gergamogik. We'll skip all of this. He goes into some of the detail. Will they all come before Mashiach, after Mashiach, the war of Gergamogik? When will it be? What will it be? And then he said, regardless of the debate concerning these questions, neither the order of the occurrences or these events precise detail among the fundamental principles of faith. And basically, he says, don't spend too much time trying to figure it out. It's not so relevant. And then again, he emphasizes, the sages and prophets did not yearn for the Messianic era in order to have dominion over the entire world, to rule over the Gentiles, to be exalted by the nations, to eat and drink and celebrate. Rather, they desired to be free, to involve themselves in Torah and wisdom without any pressures or disturbances, so that they would merit the world to come, as explained in Hilfus Teshuvah. 
So we're going to see those the, the, those chapters, the relevant parts of Hilchas Shuvah, in a moment. Then he finishes off that in that era of the world we need a famine, a war, envy, a competition for good will flow in abundance, and all the delights will be freely available as dust. The occupation of the entire world will be solely to know God, and therefore the Jews will be great sages and know the hidden matters, grasping the knowledge of their Creator according to the full extent of human potential. The world will be filled with the knowledge of God as the waters cover the ocean bed. Okay, so the Rambam is sort of describing here that the time of Mashiach is not a time of miracles. It's a time of absolute peace where we will be completely free from any distractions and be able and available to devote ourselves entirely to the pursuit of knowledge, to the pursuit of Torah, to the pursuit of God, um, etc., etc. That is what Mashiach is all about. Specifically, the Rambam quotes the teaching of Shmuel that there is no different that Mashiach is is about being free from our subjugation to the nations, and he says twice that there'll be no that, that Mashiach doesn't have to do miracles. Once is in the beginning of chapter twelve, where he says, "Don't presume that in messianic age any facet of the world's created nature will change," and another time in chapter eleven when he's talking about the person, the persona of Mashiach. Where he again says, one should not presume that messianic king must work miracles and wonders. And it's not true. And he brings the proof from Bar Kochba. Now, let me, let me show you. Let's, show, let's look at the Gemara where we see Shmuel. Safari. Um, hold on, we'll Sorry, it's ninety nine, ninety one. All the prophets prophesize only about Messianic era. With regard to the world to come, the reward is not quantifiable. As it states, no eye has seen it, God, aside from you, um, who will do for those who await him. Okay? So we have here two things. We have the days of Mashiach, and we have Olam Haba, literally the world to come. Now, we're going to see soon that what exactly those two words mean, the world to come, is up for a very, very big debate. But let's just first read the Gemara. We have prophecies from 
Yeshaya, many prophecies which describe something amazing to come. Says all of those amazing prophecies are descriptive of the days of Mashiach. Olam Haba cannot be described, cannot have been experienced or prophesied by anybody. It's something which is only within the purview of Hashem. He knows it and he's keeping it to himself and that's the world to come. And the prophecies all apply to the time of Mashiach. disagrees with Shmuel. The Omar Shmuel, because Shmuel says, no. The sole difference between the world today as we know it, and the days of Mashiach is, that's the Rambam we just so quoted, that our, we will be emancipated from our subjugation to the nations, right? Or as they translated here, servitude to foreign kingdoms, right? So if Shmuel says that the only difference between Yemosa Mashiach and today is that we won't be subjugated to the other nations, then what are all the prophecies about? All the, all the amazing prophecies, the, the barren trees will give fruit and the, the, the wolf will, you know, all of these things. So it must be that Shmuel holds that those prophecies are about Olam Haba. Right? That's why Pligi, that's why they are arguing. Now we're going to see soon that this become this presents a big problem because we'll see that the Rambam quotes Shmuel more than once, but at the same time he also quotes things which only fit according to Rabbi Baraba. So even though the Gemara explicitly says that Rabbi Baraba and Shmuel are arguing with each other, the Rambam seems to be what we call in Gemara lingo He seems to be tasking like two contradictory opinions. Again, it's very important to get this clear. Rabbi says the prophecies which foretell good in the future are all referring to Yemosa Mashiach. Olam Habo is unimaginable. Shmuel says, no, Yemosa Mashiach is, 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 is not such a big deal. Yemosa Mashiach just means we won't be subjugated to the nations. And all the prophecies are about Olam Haba. So, in other words, Olam Haba is imaginable. Right? Well, you should, what's... I just don't understand it. What don't you understand? No, I, I don't understand why that <coughs> conclusion was reached. Like, it, you could, you could eat that. It's a Gemara, so there's nothing I can do about it. But, like, you could easily say that the Rambam holds, or Shmuel holds, that every one of these prophecies that sound like they're fantastical are really just natural phenomena. And he'll explain it just like the wolf and the, and the sheep. Yeah, but I don't know if the prophecies, and again, I, I have to confess, I haven't sort of learned this Gemara with all the Mephoshim, and certainly not in time recently. Um, but I assume that when we're talking about prophecies, we're not just talking about the wolf lying with the sheep. You know, that we'll see God, and then uh, talking about spiritual experience. Yeah. Okay. I mean, even like, yeah. you know, like these prophecies that, you know, like things are going to be in plentiful. So it says, so it says that like you're going to have like clothing growing on trees and, you know, things like that. There's, there's, there's uh, something like that. You could easily say that means in some ways industry is going to. I mean, Shmuel's Raya, one of the Raya's that Shmuel brings is they'll be poor people. So if they'll be poor people. So even, so you're saying, Everything being plentiful doesn't mean actually, actually you know, um, chocolate bars growing on the trees. 
it means that things will be implantable. But Shmuel even holds that that's not true. Shmuel holds that things won't be. There will be poor people. We just won't be, you know, I don't know if I should say this on record, but if I was a Zionist, I would say that uh, the Israeli government would do what they have to do without any care for what the UN or any other foreign body is going to tell them. That's what Shibud Malchias means. Right? There's still going to be poor people. There's still going to be um, anti-vaxxers. There's still, you know, <laughs> but... <laughs> yeah, but I don't think, I think Shmuel would, would agree that there's ramifications of the Shibud Malchus being uh, done with, which would mean that what... I think could mean that the poor wouldn't be as as poor. Why? I don't think so at all. There's I do. I do agree. I do agree. I do agree that there is some gray area over there. Is when Shmuel says that there's only Shibun Malchia, sort of. How far does that go? I mean, meaning, obviously, there's ramifications to that, other than the fact that is Israel is not a what's the word in English when you're you're your own nation, but you're really subject to other nations. Is the word for it? No, there's another word for it. Uh, no. Well, it's uh, well, independent. Anyway, whatever. The point is, right? Sovereignty. The point is that, yes, obviously having no other um, foreign rulers, right, has more ramifications than just not paying tax or stuff like that, right? It, 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 it's a healthier society. It's a holier society. It's a more Torah society. I, I mean, right? But Shmuel explicitly says one of his proofs is because there's still going to be poor people, right? So I mean, that they're going to be poor, but they're not going to be as poor. I mean, that's very arbitrary. Possibly, but that I think it's going to be a different kind of situation. It's not going to be supernatural. That's I think that's Shmuel's primary point. That's that's a primary point of the Rambam. I don't know if that's Shmuel's primary point. You're you're. I think that if if I made be so bold as to suggest that your premise is that the Rambam and Shmuel go in hand in hand and therefore because you know that the Rambam says that you're putting words into Shmuel's mouth so don't do that you're right that that's what the Rambam says but Shmuel doesn't say that but the Rambam also in numerous places we'll see soon so that that's the problem that's the problem so, so therefore, uh, whichever there's the, 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 the numerous mafarshim have different ways of explaining it, and the Rebbe has his chiddush on it. But whichever way it is, you can't just say Shmuel and the Rambam are the same thing. They're not. The Shmuel might be. And I don't. I don't want to get too sidetracked. I think it's not. Uh, Shmuel might, might very well be that the only difference is Shmuel Malchus. Yeah. The Rambam seems to be saying much more than that. Right. And the question is, does the Rambam say? Is the Rambam saying much more than that because he holds that Shmuel holds that? Or is he saying much more than that because he has because he's passing like a pchibarab, and yet he's still saying that there won't be miracles, right? Okay, so now, okay, so we've seen the gemara. This is a very important gemara to remember: pchibarab versus Shmuel. There will be the, um, the prophecy Mashiach. Um, all the prophecies pertain to the era of Mashiach. Elu is unimaginable. Shmuel says no, Mashiach just means no servitude to other nations, and all the prophecies refer to El Vabba. Now, I'm going to take you back to what we saw before we look at Hilchus Shuga. We're going to recap over here, right? The Rambam said, we saw this just a few moments ago, chapter 11, that um, Mashiach is not going to do any miracles. Now, one of the, in, in, in so describing, let's read the words of the Rambam again. He said that he won't do any miracles or wonders, bring about new phenomena in the world, resurrect the dead. Bam. Now the Rambam, 
um, suffered a tremendous amount of slack for writing these three words. And that's where Igeras Tchias Amesim comes in. Now, we're not going to do a whole history course here on the Rambam. I don't think it was only these three words. I think these three words fed into an agenda of those uh, who opposed the Rambam, and they sort of they they hooked onto these three words to to build their case. But basically, the Rambam was accused, and in the letter in the letter that the Rambam responds to this accusation, he seems to be suggesting that the people who um, accused him of this may have not been so innocently mistaken. They may have been maliciously. Um, bending his word, but be that as it may, the Rambam, there was an accusation out there against the Rambam, which started to spread, and many people started to accept this rumor that the Rambam does not believe in the resurrection of the dead. And as ridiculous as this sounds, because the Rambam is the um, author of the 13, the, the inventor, if you will, of the 13 principles of faith, and one of them is Tchias um, Amesim, yeah, how could you impossible, you know, and the Rambam says, the Rambam responds in the letter, he writes, this is like so ridiculous, how can anybody say that I, I don't believe in the case But nevertheless, the Rambam, it seems that this, this was such a terrible accusation and such a widespread accusation that the Rambam felt the need to respond to it. And so he wrote this letter, which is known as the Gerest Chies Amesim. Um, there's another letter called the Gerest Haman, which... Uh, now, in this against Chesamesim, the Rambam explains his opinion about the miracles and about Mesim Mashiach and Elam Haba in greater depth. And he also says, so let, let, me, let me just sort of try and recap some points that the Rambam makes in this letter. And I don't have, I, I, it's, do you know offhand where this, this letter is available in English online? Is it available anywhere online in English? Okay. Um, it's it's not an easy letter to read because it's it's translated. The Rambam wrote it in Arabic, so uh, you're reading from a translation which is trying to you know anyway. But um, you have to sort of get used to that language. So first of all, the Rambam says like this. The Rambam's opinion is that Olam Haba basically, according to Rambam, life cycle of Jews is as follows. person is born into this world, lives 120 years in this world, and then he passes into what we colloquially today call as Gan Eden. Um, which can also be called Olam Haba, and the Rambam says, I think we're going to see this soon in Lukas we call that the world to come, not because it doesn't currently exist today, but it's the world to come because it's what comes to the Neshama after he leaves his body in this world. Perhaps for the purposes of our conversation, it would be best to translate that as the afterlife, right? That's the afterlife. Wherever, you know, the Neshama doesn't cease to exist, we're going to see soon in Lukas um, and um, and that's the afterlife. Then there is the time. Then there is the resurrection of the dead, which means that all the people who deserve it 
Yeah, basically well, almost every Jew, as Tzadam describes in the Chelek, will be resurrected and be reborn and come alive again in their body as they were in their lifetime, etc. And then again, they will live however many years in, the, in their second life. And then they will die again. And after the second death, yeah, then we come to what is actually Olam Haba, the world to come, the world that doesn't exist today, but it's the ultimate, that, that, that's the ultimate goal of this world, right? The ultimate result is that the body expires and the soul um, continues its complete existence, its ultimate existence, without being bound by um, physical, uh, you know, uh, concerns, constraints, and it, it's Olam Haba, right? And so, for example, the Gemara, which we said before, that Olam uh, Haba is unimaginable, and uh, even the prophets didn't talk about that. That's what we're talking about. Olam Haba, after Tchiyas HaMesim, at the very end of everything, that's Olam uh, Haba in the Rambam's opinion. Now, this is very, very different than many others. The most, uh, the, the, the Raiva disagrees with the Rambam, and the one who's famous for articulating it most um, explicitly is the Ramban, Nachmanides, and he says absolutely not. He says that Olam Haba, that Olam that, that, is synonymous with Olam Haba. In other words, the ultimate, and, 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 and the Kabbalah, and certainly Chesudas, sides very strongly with the Ramban on this, not like the Rambam, that um, the ultimate goal is the ultimate goal is life in this world. The ultimate goal is when the being alive in a physical body. And so you have people live in this world and they go to what we call the afterlife, and then there is the resurrection of the dead. And that is the end. That is the, that is the ultimate goal that people are alive. The, 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 the fusion between people being alive in a physical world and a physical body and experiencing God in the most obvious and true, real, tangible way. The fusion of those two is the ultimate fulfillment of of, uh, of of the whole purpose of creation, of our whole goal in life. And that's what the Gemara means, that the prophets can't even, the Kavinian, the Kavinian can't even describe that because that type of reality is something where it, it, it's, in our experience, such a thing is mutually exclusive, right? We can't have absolute revelation of God and physical. The two are a contradiction to each other. But Ayin uh, Ayin Yeru, but that Olam Haba, that is something which Nevi'im couldn't imagine, but that is the ultimate, the ultimate purpose. Yeah, so according to the Rambam, you die again. According to the Rambam, you die again, the Rambam writes. Right. Ultimately, the ultimate purpose is the one of the questions on the Rambam, <laughs> which which um, it, it's very difficult to point to Rambam to understand what the point of what's the point of Tchiris yeah. Um Just to, to come alive to do it. To, no, okay, one second. But before I get to that, where does Mashiach in this whole thing? Where does Mashiach come into it? Right. So, the pastures, the way we understand it is that first Mashiach comes, and then either immediately or sometime after that, there's Tchiris Hamesim. And so the idea, according to the Rambam, is going to be something along the lines is that 
people lived their lives and served God in this in their first lifetime. Um, but with all the, it wasn't really, you know, there were all these distractions and all the problems, whatever, depending on what period of history they lived in. But either way, right, there, there's a lot of distractions. But then they come back and relive life in a world which is at the, the Rambam describes at the end of chapter 12, which is full of the knowledge of God, and that's the sole pursuit of all of mankind, etc., etc., right? And then once you live life again in such a world, then you go back to Elam Abo, and then it's, the, the, you know, then that's the real deal, because like we're going to see soon in Elchus Tshuva, the Rambam is very strong on whatever happens in Elam Abo is a consequence of what you accomplished in this world, right? So if you serve God in this world, but you were trying to understand Torah, to understand God, but you couldn't because you were distracted by your lack of competence or by pogroms or by whatever, right? So therefore you have Tchiyas Mason where you have the opportunity to live um, life in a, without any distractions, be they internal, external, whatever it is, any distractions whatsoever, the sole purpose, the sole um, objective of all of mankind is pursuit of God. You live such a life, then the ultimate is that then you get to reap the, the consequences of that, and that's the ultimate. Um, way the Rambam thinks generally, at least in Tommy and Mitzvahs, that it's to set up and structure society where you can get close to Hashem. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's, it's, the fact that the world is so filled with, with distractions and, and persecution, to have a point where we all can come back and actually live life to the fullest in terms of Hashem, that fits the Rambam's general thesis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's good. Okay. So, um, so we're going to see, we're going to see that a, more explicitly in the Shuvah, we'll go through it. But in this letter, the Rambam sort of puts this down all very clearly that that's his opinion of what Elam Habo is about. And therefore, okay, so he says, so then he gets into, the, and, and then in this letter, he gets into this, he says, you know, this that we wrote in the Mishnah Torah, the Avogadro Zevim Kevis, that all of these things are merely metaphors and they're not to be taken literally. There's not God, Mashiach is not about doing miracles. So he says, all of these things that I said that they're a marshal, that they're a metaphor, I'm not saying that um, conclusively. I didn't get a prophecy from Hashem telling me that all of these things are only a metaphor. That's the way it appears to me. If somebody wants to say there will be miracles, no, I don't mind that there's miracles. I'm not, I'm not saying there can't be miracles. My main point, I don't think there's going to be miracles. I think that these things are all metaphors. But the, 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 the primary point is not whether there will or there won't be miracles. The primary point is that's not what Mashiach is about. Mashiach is not about um, doing miracles. That's not his job. Um, but... Um, but then he says, however, is absolutely one of the principles of faith, and it's absolutely a must to believe in it, and he goes through various sources and reasons why it's an absolute must to believe that. He, he even he says that doesn't necessarily could happen before Mashiach, after Mashiach, is it, you know, it's, it's, he's very um, it doesn't really matter when it's going to happen exactly. Um, One second. 
And he says in general that he's not so, um, he doesn't like uh, miracles. It's Hashem wants to do things in a natural way. And, you know, but certainly there are miracles. Hashem can do miracles. And one of the miracles of Hashem is going to do is the resurrection of the dead. Okay, that's basically the gist of this letter. Uh, you know, obviously very, uh, just very briefly. Okay, uh, maybe we'll revisit some more details of the letter as they come up. But we have some time remaining, and I want to look together at Hilchus Teshuva of the Rambam. Okay, chapter 8 of Hilchus Teshuva. The good that is hidden for the righteous is the life of the world to come, right? Olam Haba. This will be life. Listen very closely here how the Rambam defines the terms. This will be life which is not accompanied by death and good, which is not accompanied. This will be life which is not accompanied by death and good, which is not accompanied by evil. The Torah alludes to this in the promise in Deuteronomy, which we say in the Shema Lemaan, they be granted you and you will live long. Um, that good will be granted to you is the world that is entirely good. You will live long. Um, in the world which is endlessly long, the world to come, right? In other words, what does it mean you'll be have good good where there's no evil, life where there's no death, right? So what do you mean life where there's no death? Every living thing has to die. Every 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 material thing has to change, has to die, right? So therefore the Raman says, no. Ayalam Haba means where there is no physicality, and that's why there's life without death, because we don't mean the life in the body, we mean spiritual life. Spiritual life can exist without death. The reward of the righteous is that they will merit this pleasure and take part in this good. The retribution of the wicked is that they will not merit this life, rather they will be cut off and die. Right? And as the Ramam explains elsewhere, that um, just like a, a blind person can't really imagine what colors look like, and a deaf person can't really imagine what sound looks like, a physical person can't really imagine what this pleasure looks like. It's just, that's what, uh, we can't, we don't know. Right? In the world to come, there is no body of physical form, only the souls of the righteous alone without a body like the ministering angels. Since there is no physical form, there is neither eating, nor drinking, nor any other bodily functions like sitting, standing, sleeping, death, sadness, laughter, and the like. Thus, the sages of the previous generations declared, in the world to come, there is neither eating, drinking, nor sexual relations. Rather, the righteous will sit with their crowns on the head and the light and the radiance of the divine presence. In that statement, it is clear that there is no body, for there is no eating or drinking. The statement, the righteous sit, Right? What does it mean that you sit? And you sit and don't stand. If you don't have a body, how could you sit and not stand? Says the Ramam, no. It means that you don't sit means that they will sit. Sorry. That they do sit means metaphorically that they, they are there. You, they exist there, right? The, the souls are there. So we say they sit. It doesn't mean they sit and they don't stand. It's just a way of, of saying it. Similarly, the phrase that crowns are on their head is also a metaphor. There's no head and there's no crown. But it implies that they will possess the knowledge. It's very important. This is, this is the Rambam. So, you know, everything is a consequence. They will possess the knowledge that they grasped, um, which allowed them to merit the life in the world to come. The knowledge which they grasped of Torah, of God, in their physical life is what brings to the world to come. This will be their crown. A similar usage of this metaphor is upon uh, Solomon. Okay.
The term soul, when used in this context, does not refer to the soul, which means the body, but rather to the form of the soul, the knowledge which it comprehends according to its power. If you want that in the lexicon of Chesidus, you would say it's Nefesh HaLikis and not the Nefesh HaBahamis. Um... How many metaphorical terms have been used to refer to the world to come? The mountain of God, the holy place, the courtyard of God, the pleasantness of God, okay? Then the Ram goes on. How much did David desire the life of the world to come? The, Ram, the sages of the previous generations have already affirmed this, that man does not have the potential to appreciate the good of the world to come in a full sense, nor can anyone know its greatness, beauty, and accept power except God alone. Right? Does anybody recognize this, this, this quote? That's Rebchir Barabba. Right? We can't even imagine it. None of the, even the prophecies can't imagine it. And all the beneficents, yeah, all collativists, which the prophets promised Israel in the visions, are only physical concerns which Israel will appreciate in the Messianic era, when dominion over the world will return to Israel. However, the good of the life to come has no comparison or likeness, nor was it described by the prophets, lest um, with such a description they diminish it. And this is Isaiah's prophet. No eye has ever seen, uh, O God, except for you, that you will do for those who wait for you, right? Anybody ever heard of this verse before? This is exactly the verse that Rabbi Barabba quoted over here, where he said, no eye has seen it aside from you, right? Um, here. Um, you do, right? This, this verse right here. So the Ramam is explicitly quoting Rabbi Barabba and saying that that is what Elam Habo is about. Okay. And then the Rambam equates the Olam Habo, that Olam Habo with the afterlife as we know it today, right? The sages are not used to the expression the world to come with the intention of implying that this realm does not exist at present or that the present realm will be destroyed and then the, that world will come into being. The matter is not so. Rather, the world to come exists and is present as implied how great is the good that you have hidden, which you have made. Um, it is only called the world to come because that life comes to a man after life in this world in which he exists as souls enclosed in the body, right? So you're enclosed in the body, then you go to the world to come, but then you come back and and go to an even, that brings you to an even higher level of okay. Now, let's look quickly here at the end of chapter 9 of Hilchus Tshuva. So here, the Rambam goes into explaining well, what is all the if, if the reward for all the mitzvahs is Elam Haba, then what, why do we have all these Yehudim, um, all these um, a foretelling of, of 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 success in this world that there won't be famine and there won't be war and there'll be plenty all of these things right? I thought isn't the whole idea Elam Haba in the world to come? So why is the Torah giving a reward in this world? Says the Ramam, no, all the world in this world is not really reward. Basically, and again we're going to have to sort of skim over it. The point is that. The reward for mitzvahs isn't peace, and the punishment for Averis is not war. 
The idea is that if you show God that you are sincere in trying to serve him, then Hashem will give you the, take away any distractions of hunger or war, etc., so that you'll be able to focus on actually serving him. Right? Which, like we saw before in the Rambam in the end of chapter 12, at the end of the Rambam, that's what Mashiach is. There'll be no war, there'll be only peace, there'll be no jealousy, there'll be no, right? And everyone's pursuit will be God, right? So that that's essentially all, says the Rambam, uh, all, all reward, all physical reward described in the Torah has to be taken, uh, seen from that perspective. And the ultimate reward in this world, the ultimate reward is the world to come. We can't even imagine that. But the ultimate reward or in this world, ultimate goal within this world is to come to the time of Mashiach when there will be zero distractions. Similarly, the Torah has informed us that if we consciously abandon the Torah, then, um, you know, then uh, the true judge will remove us all the benefits, right? So if you show God that you're not interested, so then he'll say, okay, fine, you'll have distractions. These blessings and curses can be interpreted as follows. If you serve God with happiness and observe his ways, he will grant you these blessings and remove these curses from you in order that you may be free to gain wisdom and turn involve yourselves in it so that you will merit the life in the world to come, right? Again, the purpose is the world to come, that which is unimaginable right now. Good will be granted to you in the world that is entirely good, and you will, right? Thus, you will merit two worlds, a good life in this world, which in turn will bring you to the life of the world to come. Because if a person does not acquire wisdom in this world, he does not possess good deeds, with what will he merit a portion in the world to come? Conversely, if you abandon God and become obsessed, that it um okay. For these reasons, all of the Jewish people, and in particular their prophets and the sages, have yearned for the messianic age. Right? So they can rest from the occupation oppression of the Gentile kingdoms who do not allow them to occupy themselves with Torah and properly. They will find rest and increase their knowledge in order to merit the world to come. In that era, right, which era? The era of the Messianic age, knowledge, wisdom, and truth will be ab become abundant. The earth will be full of the knowledge of God. This is the very same verses that the Rambam quotes at the end of Hilchus Malachim chapter 12. Right? The world will be filled with the knowledge of God as the world, right? Same, same verses. Um, one man will no longer teach his brother, nor uh, was, yeah, etc. I'll take away your stone of heart and give you a heart of flesh. These changes will come about because the king who will arise from David's descendants will be a greater master of knowledge than Solomon and a great prophet close to the level of Moses, our teacher. And therefore he will be able to teach the entire nation and instruct them in the path of God. All the Gentile nations will come to hear him. Nevertheless, the ultimate of all reward and the final good is um, the world to come. In contrast to the Messianic age, uh, will be life within the context of this world with the world following its natural path and accept that the sovereignty will be returned to Israel. And our sages of the previous generation have already declared there's no difference between the present age and the Messianic era except for the subjugation to the nations. Who's that? Shmuel. So what's going on over here, right? The Rambam here, he, he, he builds this whole picture of what Elam Haba is what Yemaisa Mashiach is, and how the era of Mashiach is there just to cater to you to have a good life um, without, without any distractions, to be able to focus on your pursuit of God, which then brings you to the ultimate world to come. But in so doing, 
he 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 quotes Shmuel, right? That there's no difference between the present day and the Messianic, except the subjugation to the nation. That he quoted Shmuel also in chapter 12 of um, here. He quoted Shmuel over here also. Remember, I pointed that out before, right? But in the previous chapter, in chapter eight of uh, of Hilchus Tshuva, um, he quoted Abchir Baraba, who said that uh, the, the the prophecies are only about Yemosa Mashiach and the world to come is unimaginable, and the Gemara explicitly says that those two opinions are mutually exclusive. So which one is it? Right? We're going to leave you today with that question. That's where we're going to end, but I'm just going to show you the same question um, from another Rambam. The Gemara says, the Mishnah says, the Mishnah says, this is the Mishnah on Shabbat 63b, um, that a person may not go out, basically on, on, on Shabbos, so you're not allowed to carry on Shabbos. So some things are considered, uh, right, you're, allowed to, well, you're allowed to wear clothes, right? No, technically wearing clothes is carrying, right? You have a shirt and you're carrying it outside. But because it's a garment, because it's called in halachic terminology, it's called a tachshit, right? Therefore, you're allowed to wear it on Shabbos, right? But there's some things which are borderline, which are questionable. Um, Ari and I have an, uh, Ari has a friend who, is very strict about what he says, you know, a lot of wear glasses on Shabbos in the street, right? But there is such an opinion because glasses, unless you're, there, unless you're wearing them to make a fashion statement, glasses are um, there because to help you see, but that's not a garment, right? Um, uh, perhaps you could say the same thing about hearing aids, um, um, you know, etc. So the question over here is what about weapons? Are you allowed to go out with, is a man allowed to go out with his sword a person might have, uh, you know, in America, we have, if you carry a weapon, it has to be concealed carry. So you're not, uh, um, so you can't say that you're wearing it as part of your fashion statement because it has to be concealed. But what if a person wears a sword? Because that's, you know, I'm a man, I have a sword, right? So can you, a person, wear a sword on Shabbos? Or is that, is that considered carrying? Or is that considered an adornment and a jewelry, a garment? Right? So the Tanakhama says in the Mishnah that, you are liable to a sin offering because it's considered carrying. And Rebeleza says, no, that these are just ornaments for him. Just as a man is permitted to go into public domain with other ornaments, he's permitted to go out with weapons. And the sages say, no, they are nothing other than reprehensible as in the future they will be eliminated um, as it is written, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Right? In other words, there won't be any there's lots of tunes for these words. A nation will not rise sword against another nation, neither will they learn war anymore. So a, a, a sword, say, say the sages, from the fact that swords are going to be eliminated in the time to come, that means that weapons are a necessary evil. Right? An earring can be an adornment. It's something to make me more beautiful. But a sword is a necessary evil, and therefore a sword cannot be considered something which is part of my fashion statement, and therefore one is obligated, one is liable for carrying it on Shabbos. Now the Gemara in the discussion of this thing, you see over here, yeah, that Rebbe, whether Shmuel, Rebbe could fit with Shmuel Rebbe Abba, but then the Gemara says explicitly
The Gemara says here explicitly, we're not going to learn the whole Gemara now. The Gemara says explicitly that the first, the opinion of the Tanakhama that says that you're liable for wearing them on Shabbos goes, coincide, concurs with the opinion of Rabbi Barabba that the prophecies are about Mashiach. But according to Shmuel, who holds that um, there's no, that's nothing, that, that so Mashiach just means that you won't be subjugated to the other nations. Um, so according to him, possibly you would be allowed to carry a sword on Shabbos, and that would fit with their blessing, right? Now, the Rambam in Hilchah Shabbos paskins like the Tanakhama, that a person is chayv chatas, a person is liable to a, uh, to bring an obligate to bring a sin offering for carrying his sword on Shabbos. So that's another explicit uh, ruling of the Rambam, which accords not with Shmuel, accords only with the opinion of Rebbe um in, in, in that machlekes. So again, this further strengthens our question that the Rambam seems to be straddling both sides of a mutually exclusive um, argument, whether the prophecies of the foretelling of the, of the good in the future refer to Yemaisa Mashiach or to Eilam Haba, and Amir Hashem will continue this topic next week. Shmuel holds that those prophecies are all about Olam Haba, right? Shmuel, yes. And the Rukhiya, when he learns those prophecies, that they're talking about um, Olam Haza, right? Olam Haza, and the Mashiach. And those prophecies very much sound like miracles, at least from Rukhiya. Um, it's not miraculous. Yes. And we're talking about the times of Mashiach. Okay, see you all next week in the session.